2: The Slate Culture Gab Fest is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash culturefest. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest, not that Gomorrah edition. It's Wednesday, August 6th, 2014. On today's show, Guardians of the Galaxy is the new superhero tentpole movie. It has critics and audiences in a swoon. Plagiarism, it bedevils journalism. Politics, academia—a recent spate of episodes raises the question: Is this an epidemic of plagiarism? But also, should we care, or at least, why should we care as much as we do? And finally, the Gabfest is getting a new theme song. We speak with our composer to be, Nick Brittell. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. And uh, of course, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana.
0: Hey,
3: Steve.
2: All right, well, let's dig right in. Guardians of the Galaxy is the latest summer tentpole from Marvel Comics. To think there was once a time when Marvel tentpole movies didn't exist, I think for legal reasons, there now our cultural kudzu. However, this one is, the critics say, distinctive. It's funnier, more humane, even has a touch of the Sch- Weltschmerz, the plot line is, I think...
1: (laughs) I'm sure that's what they said on the log line in the studio (laughs) meeting. It's Iron Man with weltschmerz. Mit extra (laughs)
2: weltschmerz. Could we bump up the weltschmerz on the script a little bit? All right. Well, anyway, the plot line is beside the point. Anyhow, it had better be. But the hook is the team of weird buddy super friends, a talking raccoon, a walking talking tree with a melancholy disposition, uh, hence the Veldschmerz. And at the center of it, the actor Chris Pratt as a louche renegade in the Han Solo mold who longs to have a cool space cowboy nickname. It is directed and co-written by James Gunn. Dana, I really am very curious to know, did you love this movie? As I take it, every other human being on the planet appears (laughs) to love it.
3: I mean, love is a little bit strong. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It surprised me that a Marvel spoof that comes from Marvel Studios would be as funny as this was. This is not, we should set the record straight, this is not satire. It's not something with like any particular social relevance. It doesn't have any much of a bite in its sort of take on Marvel, but it's a pretty funny spoof in kind of the... I don't know, airplane mode or something. It's more of like a a
1: takeoff on sort of the familiar tropes of superhero movies. And as such, I enjoyed it a lot. I think spoof is even strong. It's just like a little bit lighthearted and doesn't take itself that seriously. Do you get more lighthearted than spoof, though? But spoof suggests to me that you are not the thing you are spoofing. And this is sort of just a Band of Brothers space cowboy movie. And it just is one of those. It's just got a little bit of a quirkier sensibility.
3: Yeah, I guess I guess I would say that that's true. But it has, a, it has a distinctly different feeling than what I would think of as sort of like the A-list Marvel movie. I mean, this now is probably going to become the new A-list type of Marvel movie because it's doing so well that they'll try to make more like it. But you agree that it is in a, in a different aesthetic category than the solemn, hammer-wielding Avengers, for example. Well,
2: yeah, well, no, that's true. But it's not in a different category from the Avengers movie. It seems to me exactly the same movie with different-looking people in it. Right? I mean, to the degree that that movie... Exhibited the sensibility of Joss Whedon. It was funny. It was self-conscious. It was a little meta. There was, you know, wisecracking throughout. I thought this was not significantly different from that. I mean, it seems to me one of the two available templates from which the large studios now make these movies, the one being the Dark Knight, you know, allegorical gloom fest, and the other (laughs) one being the light, fizzy, poppy, funny, vaguely or not so vaguely shit eating version and this was really the latter can I just say quickly what I thought of it Um, only because uh, only because no one cares (laughs) (laughs) get it out of the way Steve
1: (laughs) let's just get it right under that bridge (laughs) just shout
3: it into the yawning void we're here for you
2: I, this this movie reminded me of like a dinner party guest who's very funny without exactly being actually clever, who's inherently likable, but a bit loud and unfocused. Then he laughs a little too uproariously at his own jokes that you're jogged into the feeling of a you know degree of merriment. Um, but when he leaves, you feel a little bit like, you know. The nine-year-old whose birthday party has just ended, you know, a little kind of self-evacuated, but it was, you know, reasonably funny and raffish. But um, my God, how people love this movie. It's kind of uh, befuddling me all over again.
1: Steve, you, I'm gonna like watch my bon mots the next time I sit next to you at a dinner party. That's it's a little bit ruthless. It's a little bit scathing.
3: Maybe he walks out of every gabfest taping like that seemed clever at the time, but Ugh. the empty
1: void I'm, of it all. I'm sick to my stomach. With that <laughs> Dana merriment. Ugh. <laughs> um, anyway, let me briefly describe the plot of this movie, and let's listen to a quick clip, and then I will reveal unto you all what I thought of the movie. Um, but I actually one of the things I like about it is that these are like no account characters that basically nobody in the Marvel Universe has ever given a shit about. That don't relate to the continuity of all the other worlds that we've seen at all. Yeah, they're just sort of these sideline characters. And somebody in the mid-aughts did an actual comic series that used this name, which is 40 years old, Guardians of the Galaxy, and brought together a group of disparate characters, essentially these ones or something like these ones, into a series that was you know, kind of novel and interesting and had a cult following, but was, like, not even a successful comic series. Like, this is not, you know, some triumph that we just don't know about because we're not comics people. This is, like, a fairly obscure Marvel property that they decided to go whole hog on in kind of a weird, sort of delightfully weird bet, I think, regardless of how it came out in terms of the movie. Um, But this movie, you know, so it's a band of weirdos. It's the louche Han Solo Nouveau character from Chris Pratt. It's Zoe Saldana wearing a lot of green makeup, looking like an unripe Navi as a sort of evil assassin who maybe has a heart of gold. There's Bradley Cooper as a talking raccoon. There's Vin Diesel as a walking tree. And then there's uh, Dave Bautista, Dave Bautista, the pro wrestler as a kind of tattooed blue behemoth also with a heart of gold, lots of hearts of gold in this movie. And there's like a widget that's going to destroy the universe and some baddies want it so they can destroy the universe and they mostly just want to fence it for money, but eventually they realize maybe they should band together and risk death in order to save the universe. That's essentially the plot of the film. So let's listen to a quick clip and get a bit of the sensibility of it. And then we can talk more about whether this is a force for good or evil in the world.
4: We have to stop Ronin. How? I have a plan. You've got a plan. Yes. First of all, you're copying me from when I said I had a plan. No, I'm not. People say that all the time. It's not that unique of a thing to say. Secondly, I don't even believe you have a plan. I have part of a plan. What percentage of a plan do you have? You don't get to ask questions after the nonsense you pulled on Nowhere. I just saved Quill. We've already established that you destroying the ship that I'm on is not saving me. When did we establish Like three it? seconds ago. No, I wasn't listening to this, I was thinking of something else. Oh. She's right. You don't get an opinion. What percentage? I don't know. 12%. 12%? (laughs) That's a fake laugh. (laughs) It's real! Totally fake. That is the most real, authentic, hysterical laugh of my entire life, because that is not a plan. It's barely a concept. You're taking their side? I am Groot. So what? It's better than 11%. What the hell does that have to do with anything? Thank you, Groot. Thank you. See? Groot's the only one of you who has a clue.
1: So you get a little bit of a sense of the wisecracking banter, and I laughed certainly more than five times. I pretty much enjoyed myself at the theater. But it is – I mean, I had a little bit of the kind of Lego movie Catch-22 response where I wanted to go turn into an anarchist in the corner, where I just feel like Hollywood keeps trying to have it both ways. They want to deliver us the big plotting thing but they want to do it with a dexterity and a lightness of touch that tries to wave its hands in our face and convince us that it is not just the same old big plotting thing. And I certainly prefer that approach to just the big plotting thing. But um, you know, at a certain point, you just have to notice like the movie hits all the beats. So the opening of the movie has real style, uh, particularly an opening scene on a planet where the Chris Pratt character is uh, going to retrieve a, a, a world-destroying gadget and he has a Walkman from his childhood on Earth. And he plays the great Redbone song, Come and Get Your Love, and just kind of like dances through this gloomy, geyser-filled, abandoned planet with a sprightly dance number. And you're like, okay, I'm in a, I'm in an interesting place. I'm in an interesting world. This is an exciting place to be. By the end of the movie, they have to come up with another way to end blockbusters. There is a 20-minute set piece where a whole civilization is at risk. Sorry, spoiler alert, except for if you've ever seen (laughs) one of these movies, you know what the hell happens at the end of one of these movies. A gigantic civilization full of innocent humans is at risk and only our heroes can save it. And there's baddies who wanted to die. And blah, 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 things blow up. And I just, however sprightly and fun and voice having this movie was, by the end of it, you're like, really? You want me to sit through 20 minutes of this again? I mean, the same thing happened with Rise of the Planet of the Apes or Dawn or the Rise, or whatever the hell the recent one was that we just talked about. You know, there's, there's a whole set piece at the end up in a... T- there, I, there's like an arms race in Hollywood where they all have these useless final half hours of their blockbusters where things just get louder and louder and stupider and stupider. And no matter how much lightness you punctuate it with. So in this one, I don't want to spoil anything, but there's like an amusing dance-off that kind of punctuates the the final bombast, but the bombast is there, you know, and however cleverly you do it or however visually distinctive it is, they're all the same movie. It's just driving me crazy. Steve, save me. I'm I'm about to go like, uh, you know, with my spray paint in the corner.
2: uh, There's no saving you. And this is your salvation, actually. You know, I also I resent this movie, frankly, for having crammed a rosebud moment into it. Uh, at the beginning and at the end that supposedly explains why our hero is, you know, deeply lovable in addition to being a loosh bad boy. You know, I think I'm forced by these movies to play the part of a culture snob that I don't in my heart of hearts believe I actually am. Because I'm comparing it not to last year at Marienbad. I'm comparing it to Iron Man, which made me laugh and I found delightful. And if I remember correctly, it was close, the first Iron Man was close to 90 minutes. Am I completely false on this? I, I I remember that one coming in at a svelte hundred minutes plus, maybe. Uh, but this kind of overstuffed, you know, banquet of you know larfs and tears and you know orgies of CGI to me is just oh, it's just exhausting.
3: Steve, I have to tell you, we have a fact check on that from our intern, and it turns out that th- that movie is five minutes longer than this one. <laughs> 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 but I know what you're going yeah, to say. It's subjectively
1: is a 90 it, minute movie.
2: It felt 90 minutes long and that's what matters, Dana.
1: Shouldn't we like start some kind of treaty? Like shouldn't there be shouldn't we like start some kind of I don't know, like UN peacekeeping force among the movie studios and just try to get them to not have that final. They spend so much money on it. It doesn't add anything. I've
3: thought that so many
1: times no, before no, no, like no.
3: but there's no way. I mean it's like that's like trying to get representations of the crucifixion taken out of medieval art or something. It's just such a huge no, part. I feel it's... like the overly long bloated action sequence is such an integral part of the global blockbuster. It's impossible to imagine ripping it out, although I agree no. that at this point we should just put in a title card that says see last 20 minute action sequence refer back insert here.
2: No, exactly. I Dana's right, it's integral, you need to have it. The solution is staring us in the face. There are what there's a small oligopoly of cell phone companies. Do they all build their own towers? No, they share some infrastructure. It's totally necessary in an oligopolistic, you know, uh, post capitalist uh I mean sorry, post industrial capitalist society. Therefore what do they do? They film one and they insert it at the end of each one of their movies. There's a standard one that they all have and they stick it in.
1: Maybe no, there just know, like could this? be maybe no. Maybe there could just be one each summer,
2: so every summer. Okay, new one
1: each summer, right? Exactly. And then they all have that final twenty minutes. All right, I, I would go for that. Uh, before we move on, I feel like we should talk briefly about the performances in the movie. Well, yeah, because I want to stand up for the good things
3: in this movie. I mean, I want to stipulate that that is can be said of all blockbusters that we talk about, but I feel like this one does have an unusual, fresh approach to much of its content and some really fun performances.
1: I agree. Tell me about the performances you liked best.
3: Well, I mean, Chris Pratt really carries the movie. He's a very unlikely hero, although he's very buffed up and he sort of surprisingly looks, I guess he lost 60 pounds for this role, which is crazy because he didn't seem that overweight before. But he's this super buffed up superhero, which is not my favorite sort of Chris Pratt style. But he's just truly a comedian and he approaches this role as a comedian, which I think that you could say that even if there's funny, wisecracking lines in the Avengers movies, that there's not sort of a
1: central comic performance the way there is in this movie. I also thought Zoe Saldana did a lot more with her like green bodysuit than she might have. She has some some verve and character, and she's just like a fun physical presence to watch on screen. Like she looks like a human spider. She's so leggy and limmy, so she's fun to watch. I had very mixed feelings about Bradley Cooper's talking raccoon. I feel like a lot of the reviews have been really in love with his talking raccoon, but I found the performance to be weirdly grating because Bradley Cooper is like pretending to be an old man New York wise guy. It seems like through the whole thing and it's like well why not just hire an old man New York like why did you hire Bradley Cooper to channel an irascible old New York wise guy in the body of a raccoon and i found that every time they were much rac-
0: less
2: yeah, much less Vin Diesel to say three words over and over again.
1: Yeah,
3: I thought both of those voice characterizations were great and both of the animations of those characters were great and I often do have resistance to a CGI character that interacts throughout the movie with human characters because I just can't get with the realness but something about the way the
1: raccoon was animated he looked like a stop motion toy raccoon he looked wonderful. He had a little bit of the Fantastic Mr. Fox vibe to exactly. him. Exactly. Yeah, I, I thought that the animations were lovely and actually the animation of Groot and Vin Diesel's voicing of Groot I thought both were lovely but the talking raccoon. I found the persona of the raccoon so at odds with my notion of Bradley Cooper as an actor that every time the raccoon talked, I was just picturing Bradley Cooper in an audio booth somewhere, like contorting his face and trying to be you know, Harvey Keitel or something. And it just seemed it just distracted me from the movie. I could not enjoy it.
3: Maybe it helped that I went in not knowing that Bradley Cooper was the raccoon. For some reason, I had just I, even that was the most hyped voice role in history, I guess, because I avoid the trailers. I didn't know who was the raccoon. And I just thought he was a great I don't know, it was, to me, not so much a New York wise guy voice it's sort of an old school Warner Brothers. It seemed like he had studied his his Warner Brothers cartoon voicing. That's fair. Okay, maybe that makes me like it better in retrospect. And Groot, come on, Groot is just a wonderful character. He's sort of, he's definitely somebody you could imagine in the Star Wars or the Lord of the Rings universe. This this living tree guy who only speaks three words, his entire linguistic capacity is to say, I am Groot. But he says it with a different intonation every time. I thought that was a nice concept for a character.
1: I, I did like it. I enjoyed him in the role. It made me feel a little sad for Vin Diesel that he's like now the he's been muscled out as the muscle man by Dave Bautista so that he didn't get the actual muscle body part. He got the he got the willowy tree part. I mean, you could have gotten like Crispin Glover to play. Like You don't need all that bulk to, to voice Groot. Um, but, I, but I thought he did a lovely job with it.
2: Mm. Okay. Well, the movie is Guardians of the Galaxy. It has opened not just wide, but universally, and it is almost universally praised. Go check it out. Tell us what you thought of us. So, were we hopeless, uh, some of us, hopeless snobs about it or no? All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor. Uh, Julia, what do we have?
1: That's right, Steve. Our sponsor this week is Audible, the leading provider of digital spoken audio entertainment. They offer more than 150,000 audiobooks, which you can play on nearly any device, including whatever you're using to listen to us right now. And they also have a special offer for you guys. You can get a 30-day free trial and one free audiobook by signing up at our special URL, audiblepodcast.com slash Fest. You can choose your free book from their vast library, including everything from classics to current New York Times bestsellers. And we've also been collecting a list of books that everybody must read to understand culture and be uh, the sort of person that Steve wants to have at his dinner parties, unlike Guardians of the Galaxy. And this week, we have an edition that I will confess I have not read, but that is on my list of things I will not respect myself until I read, which is the book The Rest is Noise by Alex Ross.
3: Yes, Alex Ross is the music critic for The New Yorker, and he basically does an exhaustive history of the music of the 20th century, which is among the music that even classical music listeners have a hard time with, essentially music from the teens, you know, from Schoenberg and when things started to get atonal and crazy up through musical inventions of the 60s and 70s.
1: Yeah, it's supposed to be just a completely masterful book, and that's one that's been on my bedside table for far too long. So I'm putting it on the list to shame myself into reading it.
3: I love the inversion of Hamlet's last words into a a
1: musical commentary, the rest is noise. That's really cool. Yeah, it's a great title. Your membership also includes a free subscription to either the New York Times or Wall Street Journal Daily Audio Digest. So give it a try today. And please use our URL so Audible knows you're a Culture Gabfest listener. That's audiblepodcast.com slash culture fest. All right, Steve, what's next?
2: Thanks, Julia. All right, moving on. A New York Times reporter lifts an entire passage directly from Wikipedia. A BuzzFeed editor is fired for filching upwards of 40 passages. A senator stands accused of errors of attribution in an old Army War College essay. Plagiarism, the theft of the words or ideas of other people, is almost always in the news, but it seems to be more in the news right now. Closer to home, Slate's own Dear Prudy notes eerie similarities between her own advice column and the advice column of Debbie Reynolds, or at least a column that goes under Debbie Reynolds' name. However unethical it appears to us instinctively, we think think of it as theft and we think it ought to be punished. Some people are questioning whether or not it's really such a sin. And Julia, you're an editor. I'm very curious to know what you think about this recent seeming epidemic of plagiarism. Do you think it's always been with us, that it's getting worse? And- finally, is there something about a culture of sampling in music or the internet, the porousness of the internet, that makes plagiarism a concept that will come under heavy revision in the coming years?
1: Well, to the first question about whether it's getting worse, I think plagiarism is just getting more findable. There's more information online, so it's much clearer what people have written before and where. And also, you know, having search tools like Google allows you to say, huh, that sentence sounds familiar. Let me just punch it in and click search. And then it might call it up. So if you had that uneasy instinct upon reading a sentence that gives you a little bit of sentence deja vu, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, what are you going to do? Like, go to the library and ask the librarian if they've ever read that sentence before? Like, it's just hard to it was much harder to identify instances of plagiarism and then prosecute them. So it's not really a mystery why we hear so much more often about plagiarism scandals these days. What I think is interesting is to think about, you know, how culturally we think about plagiarism. Obviously, journalists care a ton about it because journalism is one of the fields in which plagiarism is a primary sin we take it very seriously we you know drum out people who are guilty of it you know i think academia is probably the other place where plagiarism is taken that seriously but you know the 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 modern world in all kinds of ways allows for sampling and reusing of information and the the ethics and mores surrounding plagiarism are in some ways specific to various fields and areas and not totally universal. So on the one hand, theft is theft and you shouldn't steal. And that's, you know, been true since uh, Moses and before. On the other hand, maybe that's changing in realms other than journalism and academia. And I I guess I think that's probably OK. I don't know. Damn. What are these realms where, where it's changing, where it's OK? Well, it's harder for me to, to really know what the practices are. But, you know, for example, like when developers are coming up with code, right? There's, like, a code base. There's existing code that does certain things that either people within your company have made and you use it and you expand and extrapolate upon it. And then there are also, like, open source code piles. Like, you can go, oh, there's a pile of code. I don't believe pile of code is the technical term. I'm sure all of our listeners (laughs) Mm -hmm. who are developers are, like, groaning now at how inane I sound. A heap and helping of code. Yeah, there's a heap and helping, you know, of, of code that you get open source, and then you can use it and play with it and adapt it. I mean, the the ethos of how that works is totally different in Alien than how we think about the work that goes into a written piece of journalism. And, you know, code is in sort of a funny middle ground because in some ways it's like machinery, right? Like it's like a plan, it's a blueprint, it's architecture, it, it creates a system or a process that happens in a reproducible way. So the notion that you would use a baseline and adapt it for your needs makes sense. On the other hand, it is writing, right? Like people, you know, you write code in a language. So that's just one area, I think, where the ethos has changed. You know, the other one that classically gets pointed to is samples in rap music where various early rap artists sampled without permission all kinds of great Hooks and tracks and bits of vocals and bits of horns and all sorts of things from you know Motown hits and other classic soul and R and B songs and repurpose them and in the early days you know I don't think they were paying licensing fees for that and eventually they had to and that did limit some of the sounds of music and I think it probably makes sense that you have to pay for that stuff. The journalist to me comes down more on the side of theft is theft and don't steal, but I think. The fact that it's journalists who cover plagiarism creates a bias in coverage of this kind of story towards thinking that it is a massive cardinal sin that will always be wrong, wrong, wrong. And so I'm sensitive to that, even though I feel that way. I guess I'm just aware that there are whole professions that I just don't have that much visibility into where the, the sanctimony that journalists treat plagiarism scandals with might not apply.
2: Mm-hmm. Dana, you're a person who makes a living by having a distinctive sensibility as expressed in words. How would you feel if you discovered those words had been appropriated and used under someone else's byline?
3: I don't know. You know, there are journalists at Slate. Emily Offey is one you just mentioned. And Jody Rosen, that happened, too. He had an entire piece just sort of shamelessly lifted and published somewhere else. I don't know how they thought they could get away with it. That's never happened to me that I know of. I suppose that I would be offended, and maybe also a little bit flattered that somebody wanted <laughs> to steal my words. I mean, I would I would think that they had done something wrong, um, without question. But I, but I think it is it is an interesting question to ask: what are the realms of meaning, you know, or the sort of realms of the fields and realms of human endeavor where this is more of a gray area? I think one of them, to some extent, is academia, at least on the on the younger side, undergraduates. And Stanley Fish had an interesting piece about this that we read in, in prepping for this segment where, you know, first of all, he sort of deplored that some of his own work had been taken by some of his academic colleagues, but he's a tenured professor. Then he was talking about, you know, how he deals with plagiarism among his undergraduate students and, you know, pointing out that he, his job is pedagogy and one of the things that he's teaching is the concept of intellectual property, the concept of ownership and copyright. And it is completely possible that, you know, people who have grown up in the Internet age don't really have a clear sense of what proper attribution is or what it means for a piece of text that doesn't appear to be authored by anyone, like a Wikipedia page that has no visible author name, to belong, nonetheless, to someone other than you. And so he took Mm -hmm. seriously the idea that part of his job is to teach this, you know, sometimes to people who are not going into fields where it's going to be that important. And, you know, so I think he was talking about rolling back some of the punishments at that level.
2: Yeah, I think this is a subject that gets interesting kind of along the margins. I think we all know what word theft is when we see it and believe it shouldn't be tolerated i think you've got to go pretty postmodern to think otherwise let me give you a couple of examples i'm curious to know what you think of them cuz i've never fully decided for myself when i was starting out at slate very very early on i wrote a culture piece when slate didn't do a lot of culture reporting this is well i think well over 10 years ago but but around uh, certainly 10 years ago and uh, in it i explored an idea that i thought was original it was it was uh, talking about scholarship that people had uh, f- uh, forgotten about Um, and in a way that I thought was kind of distinctive or original to me. And um, at which point, a supposedly far more august publication, several months later with enough lead time that they clearly had gotten the idea from my piece, wrote something really similar. And it was longer and bigger because it was a more long form, uh, bigger uh, forum for such things. And I have to say it triggered some, I mean, there there was no outright theft. There was no plagiarism at all. But I felt, a, a, for the first time, I felt a kind of primal Lockean uh, property, right, over s- intellectual work that I had performed. And what what killed me about it was to get the intellectual ball moving from point A to point B was an enormous amount of work on my part. And I experienced that work, you know, v- very personally. Like, uh, And it was, you know, particular to the work that I had put in to get the ball to point B. And then someone just reaches in and picks up the ball at point B and says, oh, I'm going to just start there as a taking off point with no acknowledgement whatsoever. It, it feels like being ripped off in really some primal way that doesn't have, it, it doesn't have a specific avenue of redress, nor should it, but it felt wrong. Okay. And then on the other hand, I'm now writing a book and I'm using as most cultural pundits do who are not credentialed historians doing enormous amounts of archival or primary research, I'm using an enormous amount. I'm relying on an enormous amount of secondary literature. And other people have done extraordinary, committed extraordinary acts of intellectual labor, which I can't help but take advantage of. I feel as though they wrote them in some sense, not for me to filch them at all, but for other people to make productive use of. Uh, not just to read passively uh, or, or consume passively, but to really integrate into their own work. And I'm not a moral idiot. I understand, especially having had the first example happen to me, I'm aware of, sensitive to the fact that these people are owed a completely transparent attribution. Readers of my book will be owed that attribution so they know where some of the information or ideas or images or quotes that I'm using come from. Nonetheless, i I also think, as the author of a book, that what I'm trying to do is craft something like an original argument. And at a certain point, you are using ingredients that start to blend with one another and become something wholly new. And so uh, what brings this to mind is that Rick Perlstein, who's written a book in some ways sort of similar to the one that I hope to write about, uh, Reagan between uh, uh, between the years 73 and 76, it's a fascinatingly really captivatingly counterintuitive way of looking at Reagan and the conservative movement is Reagan before he comes to power and what, changes that the Republican establishment sort of weakens itself against what they considered at the time the virus of Reaganism uh, and allow a much further right-slash-libertarian conservatism to take over the otherwise Northeast polite waspy Republican Party. It sounds like a terrific book. I can't wait to uh, read it. But right now he's being accused, I think, stupidly, completely stupidly of plagiarism on just this basis because he made liberal, in the best sense of the word, use of secondary sources... And I'm assured that his attributions are completely in order, but there's a kind of persnickety game of gotcha going on. So, all I guess what I'm trying to say is, the complicated issue is, on what basis do people possess not specific words, because that's the obvious example, but ideas or the fruits of an intellectual labor that really were particular to an individual sensibility? How? How available are they in the pub? freely available are they in the public realm? How 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 fussy do you have to be in your attributions of stuff? I think it's a really interesting issue to which I can offer no conclusion, only those two examples.
3: But of these recent plagiarism scandals, which do you guys find the most disturbing or the most this shouldn't be a big deal at all? I mean, there's a lot of sort of fine-grained differences between these various scandals.
2: I think by far and away, at first blush at least, the Times reporter lifting a passage from Wikipedia is, is pretty bad. Not only because it seems to have come directly from all appearances, just directly out of a data dump, you know, word for word, cut and paste out of a Wikipedia entry, it's also the, the sheer laziness of it, the using this just internet search common source, it just struck me as really worth a degree of public shaming somehow.
1: Well, and especially if your whole business model is that we are the extra level of understanding and research that is worth paying for and that it's different than just Googling things on the internet for free. I think that that feels like more of a slap in the face to the e- entire ethos and business model of the times. Then I think there's sort of the flip side, schadenfreude around the BuzzFeed example, where Benny Johnson, who was their viral politics editor and who had like publicly castigated people in other previous plagiarism scandals was found to have repeatedly taken background copy from things like Yahoo Answers and Wikipedia. You know, I think any editor knows that plagiarism can rear its head in all sorts of places from the utterly expected to the utterly unexpected. And so I'm never inclined to indulge in too much schadenfreude. I mean, one example that I thought was interesting was Slate also had a piece last week about a Wimbledon plagiarism scandal. That was fascinating. There's this Wimbledon yearbook that they publish every year that's kind of like all the glories of this year's tournament, um, kind of like a big glossy program full of information about the stunning matches and the harrowing defeats and this or that. Um, and, and you know, this same writer had been putting it together for 10 years and um, a reporter for Slate figured out um, that basically it was just a clip job. Like he was just full on taking pieces from The Guardian, pieces from Sports Illustrated. And it was kind of a known secret within the Tennis Journalism Association. It's like clubby. These guys travel around together all the time to all these different big Grand Slam tournaments. And they all kind of knew it was icky. But, you know, it, it, it like nobody, nobody made a fuss for a while because it, the yearbook of Wimbledon is not exactly journalism, right? That
3: was that was why that was an interesting one, because it does sort of seem to the outsider to be a very low stakes game, the coffee table book about the Wimbledon tournament. But then when you sort of look at the guy's, you know, shameless lifting of things from here and there, it's almost like it should have been presented straightforwardly as a, a press collage, you know, and that there should have just been sort of press clippings about Wimbledon.
1: At least there would have been attribution. Right. You could syndicate them. You could just license them and pay for them and put it together, you know, have an editor to put the exact same words in the book. But, I think the thing that I always strive to remember about it is that it's very black and white in my field. But when this sort of thing appears in other areas, the rules and mores shift. Mm.
2: All right. Well, doubtless among our listeners are uh, countless numbers of people who teach, have students who maybe do this, people in journalism, people who've been affected by it one way or another. We'd love to hear what your stories are and where you fall out on this issue. Many people are fundamentalists on it and think it is a, a totally it's a cardinal sin against intellectual property come check us out at facebook.com slash culture tell us what you think about plagiarism all right well anyway moving on we at the gab fest need a new theme song at least somewhat more than a hole in the head <laughs> so we put the fact out on facebook and i for one was surprised at how many people have a kind of pavlovian affection for the theme song that we've got for which none of us has a special affection we've been meaning to um uh, replace it for years. Anyhow, people on Facebook sent us a bunch of adjectives about what our theme song should be. It was a wonderful, effective uh, word cloud. Uh, here's the... Just let me read a couple of those uh, entries. Whatever you do, there should be a bit of bird song and plain chant, a solid pop beat, and a subtle guitar <laughs> wizardry to honor Dana, Julia, and Stephen respectively. I swear this can be done. Another person simply said, Granola, Kierkegaard, and then my favorite one <laughs> My favorite was Hallucinatory Opaque Gooey. <laughs> what goes into making a theme song? Well, we're actually going to find this out uh, firsthand and close up. We are going to ask our composer to be, who is Nicholas Bertel, who worked on the movie 12 Years a Slave, whose music was wonderful, and Give Me the Lute, which I'm told has wonderful music, too. I plan to see it soon. Nick, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much. So happy to be here. Uh, no. This is awesome. Uh, so so glad to have you. It is awesome, um, <laughs> Julia. Why don't you Why don't you take the reins?
1: Sure. So so Nick. We are people who have an idea that we want new music in our lives. Our theme song, which I think our listeners do have some affection for, probably more than us because they hear it more than we do. It's not like we commence each taping by playing it in here, you know? (laughs) So we don't hear it every week the way our listeners do. Um, But it was a piece of music that was written before our show even existed for the political gab fest, and we just kind of inherited it. And for a while we had the same theme, and a guy who was a developer at Slate but who was a musician on the side wrote it. And it's a nice little piece of music, but it just... It doesn't have anything to do with our show. Like it just existed and we used it and then we started our show and our show didn't even become our show for like a few months or years because we didn't know each other, you know. So we've now built up this whole culture that is our show and, and a vibe and a character and a set of relationships and we do not feel that it is musically represented by our current theme song. So we've been meaning to change the theme song for a long time, but... We, you know, we're a culture show. So it seemed like an opportunity to turn it into a segment and, and, and tell our listeners how stuff like that happens. Absolutely. So you're a composer. Yes. So people who want music in their lives but are not musicians and don't necessarily know how to talk about it, those are often your clients, right? Absolutely. So what do you do? <laughs> like, how does the process usually work? Like, totally. if we're just like, we want a new theme song, or if someone's like, I'd like you to write the score for this scene.
0: Right. Where do you start? Sure. I mean uh those are great questions and actually I think that every project is really uh is really totally different. You know, it's a it's often a totally different group of people, uh different story, uh different ideas that are trying to be communicated. So I think in each case, you know, you really have to look at it as itself and, and focus on what uh you know what the goals are. So uh I think for me there are a few things that I would do in each case. Um because music is it's so intangible you know by nature um and it's something that is very difficult to you know talk about actually with words um usually the first thing is to think about uh reference music you know so for example like there already is actually a theme song here you know so listening to that you know are there you know are there things about it that people like you know are there other songs over the years that you guys have heard other themes you know that might be the type of thing that uh you're like oh actually we'd rather have something totally like you know like that track or we want something that's more you know of a of a reggae vibe or you know i mean like you know there's all these different possibilities so i think oftentimes you know just because it puts something more concrete on it um you know listening to uh uh, it might not be exactly the right track but something that's more in the direction you know as as just comparison you know Mm -hmm. so reference is the first thing um the the once that stage has happened, I think the the more really interesting and fun and exciting part of the the composing process is where you go much deeper and actually it gets much more uh, sort of introspective and I think uh, meditative in a way where you really have to say to yourself, you know, uh, what are the actual sort of feelings that, you know, you want to have? You know, what are the what do you want the audience to feel? when they when they hear this music. You know, what like at a very deep level, like what do you want this to say?
1: The one thing that strikes me as tricky in trying to even think about how I might explain to you what we want here. Mm-hmm. I mean, first of all, I don't think we know what we want, so that's probably Which is totally okay. <laughs> maybe what you don't want to hear from a no, p- perspective okay. client, right? But <laughs> I also feel like as an editor of words, I'm very aware and conscious of what certain types of sentences or sentence structures or headline types or ways of writing, what effect they might have in users. But I'm much less clued in about what certain instruments or rhythms or... I mean, obviously, music is in my head, and when I hear horns, it probably evokes a certain feeling, like, okay, it's like a little regal, maybe, if it's a certain kind of horn a certain way, but obviously horns are also in all kinds of... You know, like, I don't have the vocabulary. And I maybe... Hopefully, you deal with some people who have a better vocabulary. And I think, actually, probably Steve and Dana have a little bit more of this musical vocabulary than I do. But it strikes me that you could... You know, we could say that we want the opening theme music to be energetic Mm -hmm. and then we could, but you could do like energetic, but it sounds like Bach or energetic and it sounds like reggae or energetic and it sounds like, you know, what Dana, what other kind of energetic theme song could we (laughs) (laughs) have? Well, there's got to be some gamelan in there, obviously. (laughs) Absolutely,
0: lots Um, of gamelan.
1: (laughs) Well, okay, so maybe we should start, as you suggest, and talk a little bit about the kind of musical riffs and references on the show, which was, you know, one of our listeners alluded to in the quotation Steve had at the outset. Because I feel like we do. There are a couple musical in jokes in the show that it might make sense to, to inform Nick about, right?
3: That's true. Well, I, I mean, I was thinking that whatever we do needs to be something that's sort of like poly vocal, you know, i mm-hmm. feeling it needs to represent yeah. all three of our voices and maybe like different cultural voices as well. You know, if there's a way to make something that sounds like mm-hmm. it's a little bit cinematic, it's a little bit right. operatic, it's a little bit literary, you know, right. something that's that's all of culture. And I don't know how you would do that instrumentally, but... Just I, all of culture. That's the assignment.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Pretty concise. You In know. 10 seconds. In twi- yeah, yeah ten have ten seconds. at it. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. No, no bag.
3: But there are sort of <laughs> right. genres with that are associated with us because of of our sort of obsessive return to you know endorsing those products and i would say steve you can speak for yourself what yours is yours is what swedish emo
2: i thought granola Kierkegaard summed it up so I <laughs> yeah that's pretty that
0: that's pretty concise yeah i like that a lot that, that that's a great starting that's point cl-
2: <laughs> that's close to all of it i mean i would say i'm um, throwing a little like spilkas, and you've got the uh <laughs> you've got my breakfast cereal my Wait, breakfast i don't
1: even know what right. that is what is that yeah, what is Spieltis? It's, like, it's something Yiddish. It's like
2: old Jewish man irritation. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right, Spieltis Kierkegaard. I like it. And then Dana, like, we're always teasing. Maybe we each need to describe each other's musical taste rather than allowing us to describe our own. So the Dana cliche... Is that is, I listen to only non-Western pop or something. No, but... that you listen to, like, Indonesian bird song, gamelan. <laughs> I think what you actually tend to endorse is, like classical and interesting folk. But somehow we've turned that into you listening to like obscure Indonesian bird song. Right.
3: Yeah. That's the joke is that my iTunes
1: consists entirely of kind of like, you know, non- Twerping and twittering. (laughs) And then what about me? You You guys take your crack at my musical taste or lack thereof. I don't
3: know. I feel like Julia's all Beyonce and Robin, and she's like into the club, and I don't know. I don't know what she's doing. <laughs> well, I'm she's also... the only one of us who keeps up with pop music. That's that's for sure. Except when we listen to it for the show. Well, and also Just
2: anything that doesn't trouble the
0: conscience at all. <laughs>
1: It's basically like shallow, <laughs> But don't take, but
0: don't take that right. the wrong way. Yeah. <laughs> but we also need a lot of Kierkegaard, so I'm trying to—I'm already starting to I'm weave sure this together. I'm sure you can square all this, no problem. <laughs> no,
1: but the other—I guess the other thing to say is that the, uh, we have an annual feature on the show called the Summer Stret Playlist, which is the—originated with me and my feeling that during the summer one should listen to— in one's headphones, a set of music with, like, a really strutty beat that will kind of propel you through the city and make you feel like you're starring in the movie of your own life and, like, mm. you're just going to, like, strut around and kick ass doing whatever you're doing that That's day. That's
3: true. Our theme definitely needs to have that strut quality. Because I, I feel like if there's
1: any kind of musical brand to the show, mm-hmm. like, strut is part of it. And I, that that aligns with, like, the pop music vibe and the Robin and the Beyonce vibe. But I'm, we're not talking any, like, Beyonce ballads. It's, like, the strut side
0: right. Of, right. of it.
1: Um, I thought maybe we should talk about, maybe we can listen to a couple popular themes and you can tell us what you think is going on in them so that it might help us understand the vocabulary a little bit. So one I thought of that's not a podcast theme but is like a theme familiar to all nerdy audiophiles is the All Things Considered theme.
0: So that's that's a fantastic theme. And actually interestingly, I think that that accomplishes a little bit of maybe some of the I think concept of having a lot of different things happen in a very short period of time because if you think about it that that track you know it starts with these sort of um you know very regimented uh notes which are uh played with sort of a combination of winds and brass it sounds like and then immediately it goes into this sort of like you know that like rko pictures kind of like morse code but it but played with instruments right and which is kind of news feeling (laughs) and then it goes into jazz which you know in this day and age, feels a little bit sort of sophisticated, but, but cool, you know, kind of like, you know, we know what we're doing, but we're also not going to be too intense about it. We're kind of, we're, you know, we're going to be more like uh, a, little relaxed. a little relaxed, but but still very, very on top of it. So I think a lot happens there in a very short period of time. I mean, to me, that is just the sound of, like, smarty pants
1: news, because that's, like, the news I grew up listening to with my family. We were totally an NPR family, more so than a TV news family. I don't know. Do you guys have associations with that theme?
3: I don't know. I mean, I I like the associations with that theme with all things considered, but I feel like that's almost what I don't want our theme to sound like, just in the sense that it has that kind of NPR urbanity or something. Mm -hmm. I feel like we need a little bit more grit. I mean, I I, I flatter myself that we are a tiny, tiny smidge more punk than NPR. (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> like, for example, and again, this is not what I would want for our theme, but I think Mark Maron's setup for his WTF podcast is really great. It, it has a lot of energy, it uses language, and it gets you right into that weird Mark Maron headspace immediately. Lock the gate!
2: <laughs>
4: <laughs> All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck nicks? What the fuck What the fuckin' what the fuck enough so let's start there
1: (laughs) (laughs) you know it's so funny I've never really listened to that and thought about it as a theme and I I kind of forgot that he does that what the fuck riff I mean he's it's just a little piece of music and then he does a different kind of like fuck pun riff to start every single show and that's almost a musical riff that he does
3: yeah is it him saying lock the gates I wonder or is that some prior existing cut I don't know
1: yeah, it, that feels like you're being shut into the asylum with Mara. <laughs> and and you kind of are, and uh, and it's very appropriate. I don't know what I don't know what our like opening call to arms would yeah, be. Yeah, I don't
3: know that we quite have the aggressivity to grab <laughs> listeners by the collar in that way. But I like how he does it.
0: Close the folio. <laughs> what's happening musically there well that's a great track too i mean totally different genre from the all things considered you know um there's uh there's an electric guitar there there's drums uh there's much more of a sort of strong edgy feeling to that track um and then also as you said you know there's the vocal there you know the sort of vocal sample um which definitely you know gives a cool character to it so um you know i think What's, there's a couple different things that we can think about just just listening to those two examples. Um, one is the question of genre, you know. Um, so it sounds like the all things considered genre that more kind of jazz or cl- kind of classical at, in certain places um, is maybe not what, what we want for this, you know, for this theme. Um, but uh, perhaps something with a beat, you know, your current theme as a beat, you know, your current theme has, has actually guitar and bass and drums. I, like, did not know there were drums.
1: Can we, maybe we should play our own theme song. Like, I'm not sure I've listened I to could our not song. I hum it. I couldn't hum <laughs> it. Wait, wait, wait. I've, no, I've never heard it. No, so. hold on. All right, we're going to play it. You can tell us what's going on here. drums in there, there. Are drums you got wow. drums and there's
0: a bass you can't really hear it. there's very low bass it sounds like and the guitar there you know as you know as compared to the other theme we just heard is it's more it's more relaxed it you know the, your current theme feels a little bit kind of like it's a little more kind of cozy it's positive it's sort of like come come by the hearth and let's you know think about some ideas it's it's definitely not an edgy theme, you know. It's it's a it's a perfectly nice theme, but it's not edgy. It's not and the and the drums themselves, you know, you didn't notice they were there. They're very, you know, uh, the pace is sort of uh, it's very chill, you know. Um, it
1: is chill. Yeah. I think you're right. It's like a comfy, cozy gather around yeah. the hearth, and we're going to have a conversation, which is actually not totally inappropriate for what we're doing here. I think maybe I object to it because my like least favorite thing to have happen when you're gathered around the hearth is for someone to take out a guitar. Maybe that's a rude thing to tell a composer. <laughs> but I would like okay. ra- I would rather I'm be... a pianist. So it's totally <laughs> right. Pianist told a whole different story. <laughs> but like, I'm like, if people are having a really fun conversation, and then someone brings out the guitar, I'm like, Oh, man, everybody's gonna start singing. And now we don't get to talk anymore. <laughs> you know? So maybe the guitar feels at odds to me with that, because it feels like maybe we're about to start I just I hope our conversation is not as soothing and relaxing as that
3: music. I hope it troubles a few more hearts and minds. <laughs> yeah,
1: our challenges. I mean, are we? Our spirit is very. We are combative with each other in a joyful, playful way. But we yeah, are
2: no. That that theme song is the oral equivalent. A u r a l equivalent of uh, like peach wheat germ smoothie or something. It just is so. <laughs> It just doesn't have any grit to it at all.
1: I also feel like in terms of our the rhythm of our conversation and the way that our ideas evolve as we talk to each other, like for me, the most fun thing about doing the show with you guys is when we start with one idea and then in the course of talking to each other, it lands us somewhere else. Like my favorite segments are the one where you guys persuade me to change my mind or altogether we arrive at some new way to understand something about the world and – There's a certain, there's a back and forthness to that, and there's like a syncopation to it, and a zestiness. Mm -hmm. There's like ideally zestiness to this show, Uh and there's not that much zestiness in our current
0: theme. In the current theme. I
1: feel like zesty might be my adjective. I guess that's not a feeling you're trying to elicit in people. Do do we want people to feel zestful? I don't know. Sure, I'd be happy to spread zest through the world. Steve, uh, I say zesty. Dana says contrapuntal. What, what's your vision, apart from the Kierkegaard granola? Is there anything slightly more emotional or musical you could offer?
2: I would go with pleasingly atonal, at least in parts, <laughs> okay. with moments of resolution and clarity, but overall not unchallenging.
3: Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I like that. That's so basically, very... he wants the "Rite of Spring," and all of our <laughs> listeners are going to throw rocks at
1: their iPods.
0: Okay, so exactly. "Rite of Spring" with a with with more of a drum beat and some electric guitars. "Rite of then, Spring" with a little spielka. Yeah, with some spielka okay.
1: If if Beyonce did "Rite of Spring,"
0: cool. Bird song, plus some and some gamelon.
1: Yeah, I think we've got like a very clear roadmap oh, really? for you.
0: I feel I feel very clear on what what I'm about to do.
1: So. <laughs> all right, um, I think you have a sense of the character of the show, Nick, and a little bit of. what what we're looking for we can we can talk a little bit more offline and focus a bit more if you have any assignments for us but nick is going to go and and work out some theme ideas for us and then we're going to have a studio visit uh in a few weeks where we go and and listen to some musical ideas and and sit down with you and evolve them and end up with a new theme song can't wait
2: thanks so much nick all right thank you guys all right well now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse dana what do you have
3: well, because I don't think we gave quite enough love to the fun parts of Guardian of the Galaxy, I'm going to endorse Awesome Mixtape number no. 1, which is the musical collection that Chris Pratt's character's mother gives to him in the movie. And you can find it on Spotify separate from the Guardians of the Galaxy soundtrack with the diegetic music written for the movie by Tyler Bates. There's a whole separate list that's just Awesome Mix number no. 1, and I cannot recommend anything higher for cleaning your basement than just <laughs> putting Awesome Mix number no. 1 on blast and hearing just come and get your love and hooked on a feeling and, and uh, the go pink, all the way Cherry Bomb by the Raspberries Cherry Bomb by the Runaways from uh, the, the, if you saw the Joan Jet biopic with Kristen Stewart from a couple years ago it was big in that too anyway it's all just songs that you know and love from AM radio and it's it's very fun to encounter them again
1: all together I, we've been listening to that Spotify playlist all weekend and then we took our boys out for a walk and heard those songs like blasting out of two cars like I think that's mm-hmm. the soundtrack to America All
3: right, right my now. most unoriginal endorsement
1: ever
2: but it is really fun <laughs> Indeed. All right. Um, Julia, what do you have? I
1: also have a Guardians of the Galaxy-related endorsement. If you liked this movie, for God's sake, you should just watch Firefly. Firefly was Joss Whedon's, you know, yet another Marvel yuckster. But it's Joss Whedon's very fun, spirited, doomed, short-lived space Western show about a bunch of renegade outlaws on a junked up old ship touring the outer parts of the galaxy mostly looking out for their own interests, but getting pulled against their will into fighting for good and truth and light and right. Uh, and it's just animated with a really fun, uh, spirited sensibility. It is a total joy. So if you're looking for a, a show that won't suck you in for like 48 hours of misery, and it's just like, you know, a couple, couple weekends worth of Netflixing, you should definitely check out Firefly.
2: Oh, my God. Well, I also have a Guardians of the Galaxy-inspired endorsement, which is the movie you should watch instead of this uh, bloated behemoth. Oh, I know
3: what it is. I know it's coming.
2: Pass itself off as charming with a few wiseacre asides. Dana, what am I going to endorse?
3: (laughs) Galaxy Quest.
2: Of course, which is a genuinely—it's like the Galaxy Quest is like being seated next to Oscar Wilde at a dinner party. I mean,
3: or even better, Alan Rickman.
2: Or better, Alan Rickman. It's a 1999 comedy. It has an amazing premise. I don't want to spoil it at all. You should just—I mean, if you haven't seen this movie, you've done yourself an enormous life disservice. It—it's it, just—it's just a total gem. 90 minutes long maybe a teeny bit teeny bit longer it feels like it goes by in a half an hour it's what movies can be like when they don't care to take themselves uh ridiculously seriously and um it's just so, it's just so much fun it's just a great it's just it's just one of the best movies ever made uh, com- Hollywood it's let me refine that a little bit it's one of the better <laughs> Hollywood comedies Made in the last. I'm
1: holding you to years. the original. Best movie ever made. Steve Metcalf, Galaxy Quest. All right, we're
3: done.
2: <laughs> <All> <laughs> it's because of you
1: have ever seen it, Steve, so I have you to thank. I love Galaxy Quest.
2: All right, well, thanks, Dana.
1: Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thank you.
2: You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page at slate.com slash culturefest, and you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman, our intern is Josephine Livingston. And the executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. Our Twitter feed is Slate Cult Fest for Dana Stevens and Julia Turner. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you next week. Can't
0: stay at home.